And we welcome you to the Wednesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. A little later in the hour, you're going to hear an excerpt from my memorable 2006 conversation with the great Bob Newhart. In part one of today's program, we're going to be talking baseball. This summer will mark the 60th anniversary of one of the great milestones in Major League Baseball history. It was 60 years ago this summer that Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle were in hot pursuit of one of the most important records in baseball, the single-season home run record of Babe Ruth. And, of course, ultimately, that record was broken by Mr. Maris. On today's morning show, you'll hear a conversation I recorded back in 2001 with Steve Meyerhoff, who at the time was an editor for The Sporting News and largely responsible for two important books that were released that summer. One of them, Baseball, 100 Years of the Modern Era, and the other, 61, the story of Roger Maris, Mickey Mantle, and One Magical Summer. That book came out to mark the 40th anniversary of that occasion. This year, as we replay the conversation, it is the 60th anniversary of Roger Maris's great accomplishment. I'd like to know a little bit about you, first of all, uh, your connection to the sports world and how you ascended to the uh, editorial position at uh, the Sporting News. Did you come up through journalism or through sports or through both? I came up through journalism, loving sports, and uh, playing sports and loving journalism all at the same time. Um, um, I worked at uh, various points in my career in newspapers and magazines, and uh, uh, I've kind of grown up um, now in my journalism career, and I'm, I'm in books. Um, more appropriately, I guess, uh, for our conversation, I'm a, I'm a baseball fan, <laughs> and uh, um, you know, I, I want to combine my interests and my and my loves, which happen to be sports and baseball and journalism, and, and try to bring them in a way um, uh, that I enjoy to people. One of the things I've heard said about baseball is that it is the sport which has by far inspired uh, the highest level of, of discussion over the years and, and the highest level of, of writing and, uh, and analysis. You don't have just fans up in the stands just sort of cheering their heads off, although that's part of it, but it's, it's also the, the kind of game that really inspires uh, all kinds of, of study and analysis and celebration. I mean, all kinds of fascinating stuff has been said and written about baseball over the years. And you, have a, you hear a lot of different theories about why that's the case, I don't, and I don't think there's any disputing um, what you say. Um, and the best explanation that I have heard um, and, and kind of I express um, is, is it's because the game itself allows you to do that. Um, you know, you can't go out um, to an NBA game or an NHL game or an NFL game. Um, you know, it's so frantic and frenetic, and everything's happening. You know, and in football, you got you know situational changes coming in, and um, in hockey, you know, you're barely trying to find the puck, and in basketball, the game has just gotten so fast and so big. Um, but with baseball, it kind of invites that instant analysis among people in the stands and people on the radio and you know people in in broadcasting. It's just the pace of the game. And and um, it's what I enjoy about it. I, you know, I'm, I'm getting older, and uh, I can't keep up with everybody and, and kind of that frantic lifestyle. And, and, you know, more and more I grow to love this game just for that reason. It's been interesting to see the upswing in interest in uh, 
Major League Baseball after uh, the, the really crushing blow of the of the of the strike a few years back, and I suppose we have uh, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa in part to thank for that, as well as maybe a documentary maker named Ken Burns have all sort of played a part in in helping to. Uh, Reestablish baseball as a real favorite. Yeah, and I'd go back, um, you know, really somewhere in between both of those. Um, and clearly, the summer of '98 with with McGuire and Sosa, and uh, you know, the whole the whole chase, um, you know, captivated um, not just baseball fans but non-baseball fans, and you know, kind of reintroduced people, reignited and reinvigorated people. But um, you can even go back to. Um, the, the the Cal Ripken um, breaking of Lou Gehrig's record, um, and and even further back, and kind of in the same vein is is the creation of Camden Yard. You know, kind of taking baseball back to a simpler, older time. Um, it, it's where I point to where there has been kind of this reinvigoration for the game, and um, I think we have you know players to thank for that, like like Cal and and Big Mac and and Sammy and. You know, and it's continuing now. You're seeing all the new, the new old ballparks that you know people are becoming very um, um, fascinated with, and and you've got great stories going on in in Barry Bonds, and um, you know the Cubs are playing well right now, and the White Sox and Pedro. Um, you know, so it it's been you know kind of a a, a bit of a the halcyon days for for Major League Baseball, and what everyone is doing right now is crossing their fingers and hoping that um, both sides of the uh, of the equation here, both management and players, don't blow it and do something foolish this offseason. Hmm. I wonder if you've seen the, the video series When It Was a Game. Absolutely. includes all kinds of wonderful home movies from uh, Once Upon a Time. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I have a, a copy of one. Um, um, in my uh, personal collection at home, I think it was the, the second movie they had made. It's 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 a terrifically done series, and I know um, Ross Greenberg at uh, at HBO Sports is it's it's a passion of his. Um, it, it's his project, and I know they're looking at an, an, another version of that, and and they're truly um, you know it, to see you know Wrigley Field in an in an older era um, in color um, is is really mind boggling. Yeah. When, when you think about the title, when it was a game, that implies that it's not a game now. Do you agree with that? I mean, the the charge that that baseball, in its uh, essential form, has has profoundly changed from from those uh, days of yesteryear that uh, many look back on with such fondness. Well, you know, I think the um, it's the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and it's it's really up to those who are referring to the game. Um, you know, to kind of answer that question. Um, is it still a game for me? Yeah, most of the time. You know, I can go out to the ballpark on a on a nice warm St. Louis evening and um, enjoy a ball game just for just for the sake of it being a ball game. Um, you know, um, there are other people who can't do that because of whatever situation it is. You know, you know fans may complain about... Um, you know the the high salaries, or they may compare uh, complain about the high ticket prices, or they may complain about you know the the labor situation that I alluded to. Um, but I think you know to truly get an answer to your question, it, it's really up to the to the person himself or herself answering that. Uh- I'm talking to you from Kenosha, Wisconsin, and uh, you mentioned the Cubs, who are just to the south of us, mm-hmm. uh, of course, in beloved Wrigley Field. 
the real big baseball story around here uh, would be our neighbors to the north, the Milwaukee Brewers, and their magnificent new ballpark, uh, Miller Park. Have you had a chance to experience that yet yourself? I have not. I came very close um, to having a, an opportunity to uh, to visit a night game there, but uh, a couple of meetings got canceled, and, and I was unable to go. Uh, I'm looking forward to it, and, and actually um, I should be um, in the next day or two uh, visiting the new ballpark in San Francisco, which I had not seen yet. Um, I try to make it a, a, a habit, a um, you know, kind of a, a ritual wherever I am to try to add at least a new ballpark uh, each year. From what I hear of Milwaukee, it's you know, it's an absolutely terrific facility, and you know, from the players in the way they talk about it, it really has changed the mindset and the attitude about going there. And um, I think I think it's really created a home field advantage. Um, um, for Milwaukee that they haven't had over the, over the past few years. Well, and my observation is that uh, it has galvanized attention in the way that you mentioned uh, Mr. Sosa and Mr. McGuire doing with their with their great home run race, that right. even people who, are, who don't call themselves baseball fans in any way, shape, or form find themselves... Uh, Almost in spite of themselves, drawn in into the excitement. Sure. Well, the, you know, the key to that, of course, is is uh, is maintaining that interest and that, and that staying power. And you know, Camden Yard did that. Um, you know, when it was initially built, and and is truly one of the, the it, one of my favorite ballparks. Um, you know, but as as that team has gone south and. You know, now we know that that Cal is intending this to be his final season. Right. Um, you know, it, it's not enough. You know, the the honeymoon is over. You got to you know keep putting good product on the field. So, you know, while you know Miller Park is a, a tremendous destination for people and an attraction to non-baseball fans, they they you continually got to maintain that interest. And and the best way to do that is to put a good team on the field. <laughs> That brings to mind the the discussion that really continues to to rage. I think is is really the the word about uh, the way in which Major League Baseball is organized, and if there are ways in which uh, footing can be a little more equitable between uh, various teams and so on. Do do you personally wish that uh, Major League Baseball was 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 doing things differently? Oh, um, you know, you can you can take that question a lot of different ways. I mean. Um, I would like to see a balanced schedule, you know, something that is more equitable for um, uh, the teams themselves. I'm not a fan of interleague play, and I think that is beneficial to, to some teams um, um, over the others. I'm not a fan of the designated hitter. I think that, um, you know, it creates an, an, an unjust situation in interleague games and, and in the World Series. So, you know, in that regard, I'd like to see things evened out. If... if if um, you know, I'm trying to answer it on on the basis of kind of a, a home field configuration. You know, one of the the beauties of baseball is to have these, you know, to have different playing dimensions. It's not like hockey or football or basketball again. You know, it's so different. Um, you know, so you hear a lot of people who will be yelling about Enron Field in Houston, for example, or Coors Field in Denver, and how unfair those those types of places are. Um, you know, yeah, I, I kind of throw my hands up sometimes and say, you know, of course all these records are going to fall when they're playing in little band boxes. But, but on the other hand, that's the charm of baseball. So um, I guess the answer to your question is, uh, yeah, I'd like to see some things kind of evened out on some levels. But, but in, in other situations in the game of baseball, that's what baseball is all about. It's about being different. Right. 
How about the fact that baseball seems to mean uh, big business and, and the fact that uh, some teams seem to have uh, so much in the way of resources compared to others? Um, you know, I, like I said, I, I, try to, I try to enjoy a ball game for a ball game. And sure, I get tired of the Yankees winning, for example. Um, and I get tired of the, the, the big market teams, um, you know, who can, who can dominate. Um, but you you look at the situation now and look at the quote unquote big market teams and you know it's not the Dodgers who are playing you know tremendously well you know in, in the big markets you got the Yankees of course the Mets aren't um, you know the two Chicago teams are are are, uh, are playing very well right now whether you consider them you know kind of in in the the big market in terms of salary um, you can kind of dispute. Um, you know, but I go out and try to enjoy the game of baseball for the game of baseball, no matter if it's the Kansas City Royals playing or if it's the New York Yankees playing. And and um, you know, believe me, I'll I'll be out there booing every day for the Yankees. But it's not because they have the highest salary in 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 baseball. It's because I just never been a Yankee fan. We're talking with uh, Steve Meyerhoff, who is editorial director of the Sporting News. The Sporting News has uh, recently released, a little earlier this year, uh, two great books about baseball, neither of which I've really had a chance to read just to, to look at. I look forward to reading both of them. One is called Baseball, 100 Years of the Modern Era, 1901 to 2000. And, of course, that's a tall order to uh, <laughs> pile all of that history into uh, one volume. Yeah, well, I, I tell people that I was smart. I, I got one of my senior editors here who is very capable of doing that, so I didn't have to make the, the difficult decisions necessarily on uh, what gets in and what gets not. Because when you're looking at 100 years of history, uh, you know, and trying to determine um, kind of uh, how to cram it into 356 pages in a book, that's a, that's a pretty tall order and a daunting task. Um, uh, Irregardless of that, it was it was a, a, a fun um, process because um, yeah, I didn't do much work. We didn't do much work. It was all the the, the people in the hundred years um, prior um, to the publication of this book who have worked at the Sporting News who have done this all for us. You know, um, Sporting News began in 1886, the modern era that most people, you know, in, in the creation of the American League, you know, having come about for the for the 1901 season. Um, you know the sporting news and and, uh, and uh, a set of writers and reporters and correspondents and over time illustrators and photographers, you know, chronicled the game and um, they did all the work. We sat back and and found what they did on kind of the hallmark um, points in baseball history and and try to bring it to you as it happened um, in you know, um, the, the pages of, of what was once called the Bible of baseball. Um, mm. and, and that was our job is to try to create the Bible for the last 100 years so that people will know how we did things and, and how things happened as they happened. Wow. The other book that you have just released, uh, is called 61, the story of Roger Maris, Mickey Mantle and one magical summer. And of course, uh, many people probably saw on HBO that marvelous, uh, film uh, of the same name which uh, has some sort of relationship with the book right we 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 embarked on the project um about a year ago at this time when, when we really began in earnest um and uh, we of course knew that hbo was was uh, planning a documentary planning a movie i guess is, is a better term um on on 61 and we thought it would be it was appropriate for the sporting news um to let people know you know what 61 was like um we chronicled 1998 for people in a book 
um, called Celebrating 70. Um, and and we wanted to do the same thing for, for that 61 season. So um, as we went along and we... we started discussing with HBO the, the the opportunity to partner together. We we did have a limited partnership um whereby um Billy Crystal who uh, was the director, the executive director of of uh, of the film um provided the foreword for us and and we wrote about how the movie was made in the book. Um and and we had a real nice relationship with HBO. I I I I thought the movie was terrific and and I would never do a project um like this linked to a partner if if um, you know if I wasn't real comfortable with the the movie itself, but he did a terrific job. He tells a great story, the emotional story of Roger Maris and and his relationship with with Mickey and um, Roger with his wife Pat and Roger with the fans in New York. And uh, we wanted to tell the story about baseball and what that summer was like for people, um, fans, for the players, and, um, you know, how a baseball publication um, like ourselves actually covered that summer. So for those of us who were, well, like me, one year old in uh-huh. 1961 and who really weren't there, even those of us who've read about it and seen movies about it, uh, in what way was that a, a magical summer? Take us back. Well, let me tell you, um, I, I'm in almost the same boat as you. I was, I guess, minus one. <laughs> so um, I don't remember it at all either. Um, you know, I really got done with the book, and um, you know, it was a fascinating process because um, I didn't know anything about it. I'd heard a lot, and of course, the summer of '98 brought a lot of the stories of Roger Maris and his family, you know, back into the news. Um, and I had heard the story, the stories about Roger losing his hair and the pressure, but um, until we did this, until I did this and and looked at it, I, I truly didn't understand that. Um, you know, I, I tell people that. You know, yeah, it was a movie, um, but you you couldn't have written a more dramatic script. I mean, here are two guys um, in the 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 marquee baseball capital of the world and you know, the media capital of the world, New York City. Um, you know, the one guy who is um, who has you know kind of the golden boy, but one who has kind of been whipped for years because um, you know he's taking over for the legend Joe DiMaggio, who all of a sudden becomes the instead of the antagonist, he's the protagonist. And uh, you got this other guy, Roger Maris, who who is vilified by by New York fans and um, you know by some accounts, you know even even teammates and and players. Um, you couldn't have written a more dramatic story and had people tell you, uh, you know, that, that was very believable. Um, you know, Crystal told me a story about the making of the movie um, uh, when we were doing the forward, and. Um, there was a point in the season where, um, well, actually, it was it was the game in Baltimore where, you know, Roger either had to hit the home run, um, it was going to be the 154th game, um, or you know it wasn't going to be you know constituted as the record, and and he did not show up for an interview with a um, with a New York reporter, and you know Billy kind of um, you know kind of glosses over that situation and never really explained why Roger never showed up. Well, Roger didn't show up because Whitey Herzog, um, who was his teammate with the Yankees at the time, um, asked him to visit a, a, a sick um, kid 
in Baltimore. And and Billy knew that. And Billy said, you know, I couldn't put that in the story because, you know, the, the story was so hard to believe anyway that you know, people really wouldn't believe that. <laughs> well, it was believable. It, it happened. It was reality. And you couldn't have written a better story. The, the sheer drama, the sheer pressure um, that must have been put on, um, you know, I, I comprehend more. Um, having gotten done with this book project and having seen the movie, but I, I, I have this feeling I don't even scratch the surface on what it was like. Hmm. Um, you know, it, it's one of those situations where, um, and, and this is what I want to do with every book that, that we do in regard to, to history and especially baseball history is try to take people back or, you know, let people relive, you know, how things happen, something that can pass generation to generation. And, um, you know, this doing this project helped me relive what that must have been like, um, which, by all accounts, was you know, you know, unbelievable. I suppose one of the things we should be really grateful for is that Mark McGuire, as he uh, captured that record, uh, was so careful to pay tribute to Roger Maris and did so uh, so graciously. And uh, and with, with and with just the utmost of class, uh, I, I could imagine someone else breaking that record and not even glancing backward. Well, you know, like him or not, and and I think McGuire has his critics as well as his fans. Um, you know, baseball history means something to him, and not just in baseball, but in a lot of other sports, you don't see contemporary players have that respect for history and, and the players who have preceded them and their accomplishments. And, um, you know, that was not an act by, by, by Mark. I, you know, he truly felt um, and, and said what he said. Um, he, he has a, a profound respect for for baseball history and, and for Roger Maris and what he went through. And, and you know, I know I've, I've read comments um, from him over the past several weeks, um, you know, as, as Barry Bonds is on this incredible pace about, you know, you know how how difficult this is going to be. This, the, the pressure, um, you know, in 98 was, was incredible, as it was in 61. And, um, you know, Mark, to his credit, recognized that and paid tribute to Roger and his family for getting through that. Well, and it, it really does put into perspective, maybe for all of us, since we can't really talk to Mr. Maris or Mr. Mantle anymore about what had to be going on inside of them. Yeah, um, you know, Billy Billy Crystal was um, very good friends with Mickey, um, and he tells great stories about the first time he met him and how he became a fan. And um, uh, Billy also says he'd, he'd never had a chance to meet, to meet Roger, but. Um, you know, what's going through these guys and, and um, you know, what they were thinking is something we'd all like to get a handle on. And then Billy, I think, clearly was in a position and, and able to, to execute that. He spent hours talking to Mickey, you know, you know, over the course of many years. And um, in the, he, he'd talk about the movie and how... You know the that um, the, the hours of talking with Mickey, all of this kind of comes out, and um, you know what's going through these guys' heads um, is a difficult thing to get to, especially now that that both of these men have passed. Um, but uh, certainly, I think something that came through in the movie itself. Mm-hmm. What about the relationship between the two? Uh, the two players so different from one another in in so many ways. Well, I, I think over time, you know, there was a, a great fallacy um, that that these guys were really at each other's throats. They were competitive, um, 
you know, but you know, let's think about it. They're athletes. They're supposed to be competitive. That's what they do for a living, and, and you know, they're going to be that way. Um, you know, on the other hand, they weren't as animostic, I think, as, as people made them out to be. I think they were very respectful of each other um, and you know, to, the, to the point of being very helpful. Um, you know, there's a, you know, the, the movie itself talks about, um, you know, how Roger literally rescued, you know, Mickey, you know, who was by all kinds of uh, accounts kind of spiraling um, into, you know, um, being out at all hours and, and drinking and, and um, you know, Roger invited him to stay um, in his queen's um, apartment. And um, you know they you know, there were roommates and and I don't know how much closer you can get than that. Um, so I think the relationship was much closer than people gave it credit for. Um, a competitive one, but one of respect um, for each other. Right. A lot of it's been said about how uh, the public and and the press too. Uh, misunderstood Roger Maris. I mean, didn't give him credit. I mean, maybe jumped to conclusions about him because of his sort of stoic, unsmiling demeanor and right. and, and so on. Um, I wonder, as editor of Sporting News, when you look back at the way uh, uh, the Sporting News, for instance, covered this back mm-hmm. in, in, in 1961, mm-hmm. was the Sporting News and its writers fair to Roger Maris? Yeah, I think we were. I, I think there's a, a little bit of a of a difference, and um, um, let me explain myself. And I, I may feel like I'm going a little wayward here, but but there's a point. In uh, in 1982, when the Brewers and the Cardinals played in the World Series, um, you know, I think there was a lot of criticism um, around the country about you know what a boring World Series that's going to be, um, and I remember. You know, having uh, um, I was a devout collector of Sports Illustrated, and I remember when, you know, the Cardinals um, won that series, um, and my issue with Sports Illustrated came, and the Cardinals weren't on the cover, and that made me furious. <laughs> and, and for all these years, I had kept my Sports Illustrated, and I didn't keep that issue. It was my kind of my personal way of you know thumbing my nose at it. Well, you know, my point is, I think that the the kind of the East Coast media. You know, really doesn't understand the the Midwest mentality, and I think that the um, Roger was miscast by the by the New York media because he was he was the way most people in the Midwest are, kind of unassuming, and mm-hmm. um, you know they're not gonna you know fly off on Deion Sanders' quotes and you know being outlandish, and you know that was perceived by the media as being quote unquote boring or or boorish or you know kind of. Um, um, you know, offish, and uh, I think that was unfair. The Sporting News, having been based in St. Louis, um, though it's a national publication, I think kind of um, expressed that um, more even-handedly and fairer than um, you know certainly the New York papers did. Um, you know, the way we covered that summer, in part, was you know talking to a lot of players um, about you know should the record be or should it not be with an asterisk. So you know we were presenting that information. But I think, you know, being of Midwestern stock, as it were, much like Maris, I think we understood a whole lot better um, his his demeanor than the New York press did. Hmm. 
course, 1961 was an entirely different era than we live in now. And now the media is everywhere. It's in our cars and in our workplaces and just seems to intrude on every arena of life. Uh, in 1961, was it a little uh, more possible for Maris and Mantle to, to put the media attention aside or, or e even, in that, uh, even in that era? Was it at such a level that it just could not be ignored? Well, I think clearly, you know, um, the, the situation is much different now than it was then. And I think it would have been easier, you know, to, to kind of let that lie um, um, in 1961. But, you know, in, a, in you know, the other part of that great dramatic story that I was talking about having been written in reality is the fact that these guys were chasing the great Babe Ruth and, you know, who was their, you know, teammate. Um, so to speak. Um, and it was the New York record. You know, people were going to be pr very protective of that. So with that in mind, um, I don't care who was going for it in what market. Um, I think the, the, the media in 61 would have been all over the situation. Um, you know, clearly now, and I point to ourselves because we are a very multimedia publisher now, um, being on the web and, and um, in mobile communications and, you know, electronic publishing, everything. Um, but right now, um, you, 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 I don't think anyone could escape the pressure with everybody coming at you from, you know, the broadcast world, the radio world, the, the web world, the, the, the print world. Um, you know, everyone's coming at you. Yeah. In your book... Uh do you really delve at all into 1962 and 1963, in other words, uh, into the aftermath, or do you really try to focus your attention on this one particular summer? Well, we, we do focus on on, on 61, um, but where the movie stops, and the, and the movie stops um, when when Roger Maris hits number 61 that year. I hope I'm not giving this away, but he does hit 61 for, <laughs> for anyone. Um yeah, we do go beyond that, and, and there's a great story to tell about the World Series that year. And um, you know, a lot of people get you know get lost into this great great chase. What it what a, another great season it was for for the Yankees and and uh, Whitey Ford and and Yogi and a lot of their other players. Anyway, um, but we go on and tell the story uh, of their careers um, and and their paths um, that they took after that. And um, you know, they're they're equally compelling stories. It, it's a tragic story for Roger. I think who uh, you know who couldn't live in in that New York market market in that pressure, um, or vice versa. Maybe that uh, the the New York fans really you know never truly respected him, um, and he he came to St. Louis and and um, and uh, played here for several seasons and probably has a um, a more um, Oh, devout following. There's, there's probably a, a more respect here for him in his, sh you know, few short seasons, where he didn't accomplish this great thing in '61 than he did in New York. And, and of course, he, he, he died early um, in 1985. And, and of course, there's the story of Mickey, who, you know, um, you know, often injured and, um, you know, probably never attained the, the, the legendary status. Um, um, that a lot of people thought, um, you know, clearly he, he's one of the greats of the game, but I think with the injuries, people had expected him to go even beyond that. And, and again, you know, the tragic story of, of uh, his eventual death just a few years ago. So, you know, our book goes beyond 61, um, and that's a distinction um, to be made in the movie, which, which again, stops um, in October of uh, 61. Mm-hmm. 
at the time of Roger Maris's death, uh, had a significant uh, amount of reappraisal occurred? Uh, I mean, had 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 our appreciation for him deepened to to any great extent, or or did that happen really only after his death? I I think um, with Roger or with Mickey. I was thinking um, more of Roger Maris, actually. With, with Roger, I, I don't think Roger really got the respect he deserved until 98. I really don't. I don't think that um, people understood that. Um, I, th- I think Roger died in 1985, so there was fully, um, um, you know, um, a significant amount of time between his death and, and, and the chase of 98 that... Um, you know, it was kind of an afterthought. Everyone remembered 61 and 61, um, but they, it, it, it kind of became a mantra and just some numbers, and people didn't understand what, what went into um, accomplishing that. Um, and I, it, until 98, when, when Mark brought it out to people, I don't think people really understood what had happened. I think there's a significant more, um, another level of respect that have come since the movie. Um, you know, people... You know, have really come away, you know, weeping, um, weeping for the story, but you know, weeping for what this man had to go through. So, um, and it, it's pretty poignant um, that you know, it, it took not just this man's death, and not just this, uh, you know, this this superhuman seventy home run season. Um, it, it took this movie to to tell people what this was really like for Roger. Really, to get what he what he um, you know kind of deserves. And, and some people will argue that he still hasn't yet. Some people will argue that this guy should be in the Hall of Fame. And until that happens, um, he hasn't really gotten what he deserves. Hmm. Well, we appreciate your time. Uh- Steve Meyerhoff in in telling us about uh, that memorable summer of 1961 and the book that uh, has just been uh, released through uh, the Sporting News, uh, 61, the story of Roger Maris, Mickey Mantle, and One Magical Summer, and the other volume called Baseball, 100 Years of the Modern Era, 1901 to 2000. I imagine that's one of those heavy uh, coffee table books that... uh, could uh, weigh you down. Um, you know what? It, it can, but I tell people you're not. Me- it's not meant to be read. It's meant to be savored. It's meant to be you know opened up on occasion and you know take a look. It's a very visual, very illustrated um, history. And the last thing I want people to do is feel like it's a encyclopedic um, <laughs> kind of accounting of baseball. This is a you know come and and uh, enjoy baseball in a very visual way with a us. Celebration. Yes. What's next? Uh, from Sporting News? Well, um, we have um, a lot of different projects right now. We just completed um, a project with the NBA on uh, the Lakers championship season. Um, We've got a book that we recently completed on the Colorado Avalanche um, in their Stanley Cup championship season. We're working very hard on a Cal Ripken book that we've been working on for about the last two years. And Hmm. um, you know we're gonna we're gonna enjoy the last two months of this guy's um, career because he's truly, um, you know, one of the most uh, one of the players who should be most respected in the game today. Um, and and we got a real fun project coming out in the in the fall called Game Faces, which is a collection of uh, sporting news images from as far back as you know the 20s, um, capturing the the game of baseball and portraits, non-action pictures of candid images of, of players and uh, in the game. So we've got a lot on our plate right now. Well, sounds like fun, and uh, maybe we'll get to talk again sometime Absolutely. As, uh, as events warrant. Steve Meyerhoff, we thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. 
You're listening to the Wednesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. For part two of today's program, you're going to hear an excerpt from a memorable 2006 morning show conversation, which I was privileged to record with the great Bob Newhart. The occasion of our conversation was the publication of his book, I Shouldn't Even Be Doing This, and Other Things That Strike Me As Funny. WGTD is actually located uh, right between Milwaukee and Chicago, so our listeners are especially interested to hear all that you have to say about uh, the wonderful city of Chicago, with whom you have such a close relationship. One thing in particular I think is especially interesting is when you say something about Chicago audiences. You say Chicago audiences just can't be fooled by a stand-up comic. In other cities, people sort of laugh where they're supposed to laugh, but people in Chicago only laugh when something is funny. Uh, any idea why that is and, and also how you've experienced that yourself? Uh, I don't know why it is. I just know it is. I know that there you can't fool a Midwest audience um, as you can fool other audiences, say a San Francisco or New York audience, because there are certain buzzwords that, um, oh, like Kafka, <laughs> if you can work Kafka into it, you generally a New York audience will laugh. Will laugh. Um, and also putting on airs. Uh, people always say, "Well, you seem like pretty much like you were, you know, when you first started out." And I said, "Well, we have this thing in the Midwest about putting on airs, you know, and don't don't act like something you're not, you know." So you think that's part of why you've sort of stayed so true to yourself that uh, because uh, Chicago audiences just wouldn't have tolerated much of anything else. Well, that and I, and I had a, a wife who kept me grounded uh, and never let me really get too full of myself. Very good. I, I know the feeling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have uh, also, among other things, given some of the credit for, for your particular wonderful, refreshing brand of comedy to uh, some of the work which you did in law school, and in particular, an appreciation for the precise word. Tell yeah. us a little more about that. Well, for instance, in the, um, the best example I can think of in, in a routine, which is one of the original routines that I started out with, uh, Submarine Commander, and he's, it, it, it's a routine on a, a man who especially in service or in a, in a large corporation. It, it's an example of the Peter Principle. It, you know, it, it, he has advanced fully two or three levels beyond his competency, and, and he's in charge of this submarine, and he's recalling for the, for the crew this uh, memorable trip that they, they're just ending. And uh, he's congratulating them on the, the two minutes that, uh, that they just cut off the record for... Uh, surfacing, firing at the tow target, and then resubmerging. And uh, and he's congratulating on, on it. It's a new record. They took two minutes off the previous record. And uh, and he, he, he said at the same time, I don't slight in, in any way the contribution made made by the men we had to leave on deck. I, I, think, <laughs> I think they had no, uh, they had a lot to do with the two minutes we were able to uh, cut off the record. And I I, I doubt if any of us will soon forget uh, their somewhat stunned expressions as, as, as we watch them through the, the periscope. 
So I, it, it, I think slight is just the, the right word, and, and stunned expressions is just the right word for it. Um, so it, I, I, I think I took that with me from law school. It's one of the few things I ever took from law school. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're glad that you did. You also, <laughs> you also talk about how uh, comedians uh, have to be at heart anti-authority, subversive in some sort of way. It's interesting for you to say that because, of course, those probably aren't the first couple of, of terms which most people would, would gravitate towards in trying to describe you um, or your brand of comedy. I mean, other people have been more obviously subversive. In what way has the work you've done been subversive in the way you're talking about? Well, it, it's... Uh... It's in there. It's it's very subtle, but but it's in there. Uh, for instance, um, when I did the uh, uh, the retirement party, um, and that was really based on my experience when I was an accountant, uh, and, I, and I worked for an insurance company, and uh, because someone I, I I first did that, and, and someone wrote me a letter, and and they said, uh, you know, they they were offended that I was making fun of. Uh, of Charlie Bedlow, who who was receiving the, the watch after 50 years with the company, and, and who was uh, he was blotto all the time, and uh, and I wrote back and explained to him that I wasn't making fun of Charlie; I was making fun of the system that that made him get blotto every day to you know to, <laughs> to, to get through the day. That's the only way he could get through the day. And again, in the submarine commander, it, it's making fun of. of the large corporation or the military or and then Abe Lincoln of course is is making fun of a revered former president so um, there is that element it, it, it may be understated but it, it's in I, I think it's in almost every every routine we're speaking with Bob Newhart about his wonderful new memoir called I, I shouldn't even be doing this and other things that strike me uh, as funny you talk about how, uh, especially uh, in, in the first years of your career, you were writing almost all of your material in a vacuum, not really knowing uh, if it was ever going to be performed. Um, do you think that was a, a, a helpful thing, in, in, in a sense, that you were writing it uh, in that way? Did it give you maybe a certain sort of a freedom? Yeah, I, su- I suppose it was, Greg. It, it was... Um... I, 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 Ed Gallagher and I had we had a, a, a syndicated radio program which was eminently unsuccessful. We finally wound up costing us money to, to do it, and uh, and then Ed got an offer for a job in New York. So I was kind of on my own. Uh, either uh, I had to find another partner or or do to do it as a single, and. Uh, and even though I had no outlet for it, I would see something and it would strike me funny. And and I I had to write it down. I had to get it down on paper before before I forgot it. Um, e- even though I never knew where I was going to you know, ever have a chance to perform it. Hmm. Those routines, uh, some of them at least, came to light and were shared on PBS in the the wonderful American Masters special they did about you. That must have really felt uh, pretty cool. That a show that uh, devotes itself to people like Leonard Bernstein. Uh, uh, devoted uh, its resources to celebrating you and your career. 
Exactly, and and it was. And I, I don't I don't know that it was so much a salute to me as it was a salute to uh, to the role of comedy and and the role that comedy plays in uh, in our in our lives. Hmm. And how and how important comedy is to to our lives. Absolutely, you talk in uh, wonderful detail in your memoir about uh, that marvelous uh, show which debuted in the 1970s, which so many of us enjoyed and have practically memorized word for word. I especially liked one thing you said about the way that your marriage with Emily was crafted in the Bob Newhart show. You said there was the perfect amount of tension, love, and respect to make that marriage feel real. We read those words and we realize so seldom is that balance uh, correctly achieved elsewhere. Uh, yeah, that, that, that pretty accurately describes, um, you know, the, the relationship that Emily and I had and uh, we had respect for each other and uh, she was independent but at the same time dependent in a, in a way on me and, and and me on her. Hmm. You say that in that show, it's eighty-five uh, percent uh, the real Bob, and the and fifteen percent is TV Bob. In other words, we're mostly seeing you most of the time when we've seen you on television and film. Is that about the right proportion? Uh, yes. Yeah. My wife has always said, you know, if the American public ever found out what you were really like, they would they, they would never show up. Of course, my response was, and, and that's, we're going to keep that secret, aren't we? <laughs> if we want to keep living the way we're living. So, Very good. You, I, you, no, I, I tend to find humor in the... Um, I tend to deal with misfortune humorously. <laughs> you also touch at one point about how one of the costs of fame is that you're not necessarily out and about in the grocery store aisles and so on like you once were. And, and, of course, it's those real-life encounters which generated so much of your material. Yeah, in a way, you know, your success, which, which we're all trying to achieve, it, it kind of cuts you off from the source of your, uh, your material. Um, and, and, and it means you, you have to work, you just have to work a little harder at, uh, at, at developing uh, your material and, and finding it. Well, you seem to manage to do that. Of course, your later career has also included some dramatic acting, that marvelous run on ER, for instance. Do you hope to do more of that? Yeah, I would love to, if, if, given the right script. And, and I, was, I, I was highly complimented that, uh, that John Wells thought that I, w I was up to that role. That, uh, based, uh, you know, I always call that my, that's my, uh, my first in intentionally dramatic role. <laughs> uh, there have been other uh, comedic roles I played that turned out to be tragic. <laughs> that was the first, that was the first uh, intentionally dramatic role. And, and uh, so not really based on what he had seen uh, me do, but he just felt I, I, could, I could handle it. And I, I felt very complimented. And, and the writing was, was marvelous. Well, and the folks who nominated you for an Emmy apparently thought you did a good job as well. Yeah, yeah, apparently. <laughs> Very good. For all that you've uh, given the American public, we thank you, and I thank you for writing this wonderful book. I shouldn't even be doing this. A pleasure to speak with you, Mr. Bob Newhart. Thank you, Greg. Thank you very much.